Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to focus on the things of your a word that you have revealed to us and that as we study through the life of Paul that we might be challenged by our understanding of uh, of what he has emphasized and what Luke has emphasized regarding his life and how you have how you used him and the way in which you uh, br- have brought out features and facets of his ministry to help us to understand the significance of the pastoral ministry and the focus of pastoral ministry. Father, as we study these things this evening, we pray that you would uh, challenge us and that we might be reminded of the uh, responsibilities we have in many different areas in the Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 20, starting a new chapter tonight and a new movement because Paul, as we've seen, has been on his third missionary journey, but now he is leaving Ephesus. He's been there for a little over two years, and he's going to leave and retrace the steps that he took on the uh, second missionary journey in terms of going to Troas, crossing over to uh, uh, Philippi and to Thessalonica, spending some time in Macedonia, then moving south. And a lot of the first part of chapter 20 reads sort of like a travelogue. So, of course, it's going to be important to have a map in front of you. And uh, this is why they put good maps in the back of your Bibles, so you can turn back there and trace your way through these things. And also uh, now you can go online, and there are some pretty good uh, maps that are that are available and that are out there. So as we look at, at the chapter tonight, I don't think we'll get much beyond the sixth verse. We may get down, no, wait a minute, we may get down to verse 12. But when I was looking at it earlier, we may not. So it's, it just depends on how things go. And we're going to look at two things that are emphasized here. I titled this follow-up in giving. The follow-up is Paul is retracing his steps to these churches that have been established. And so all through this chapter, we see a more of a glimpse of Paul's ministry as a pastor, as a guide, as a leader on these churches that he has established. And then there's something that's not brought out within the text, but if we want to understand where he's going and what's going on, when we look at uh, relative or related passages in the epistles, especially 2 Corinthians and Romans, which are written during this part of the uh, of his third missionary journey, we see something related to the doctrine of giving that is important and I think needs to be emphasized every now and then. Uh, whenever we look at the scriptural teaching on giving, it's always a little bit of a jolt, I think, for a lot of people, but it's something we need to pay attention to as part of our, part of our spiritual life. First of all, we have a map here uh, of the western coast of Turkey along the Aegean Sea, and down here we have Ephesus, Ephesus indicated by the Red Star. Of course, the harbor that existed in the first century came much further in. It's been silted in and was silted in within about 300 years of the time of the New Testament. And Paul is going to leave here, and he's going to head north. I didn't mean to click that. He's going to head north to Troas, and then from Troas, he will head across uh, the Aegean to Macedonia. That's the direction he's going to take. And then on his return, he'll come back to Troas. He'll go, he'll take a ship around this uh, cape here back to Athos, and then they will cross over uh, the Isle of uh, Lesbos and then move further south as he comes down, eventually ending up down here in the area of uh, Miletus. And there, that will be next week where he has a meeting with the elders at Ephesus. So let's look at the beginning of the, of the chapter. After the uproar had ceased. So this places us in time at the end of the riot that occurred in Ephesus, which we studied last time, when the silversmith, uh, uh, labor union got together and were concerned about the loss of revenue because they built these little silver statues of Artemis of the Ephesians, and we looked at that last time, and they brought in quite a bit of revenue, and this was their livelihood. But as the gospel was taught, 
It challenged people's belief system. And as they turned to God and believed in Christ, the, the result of that was that the people were no longer spending their money on all of these little magical charms and these uh, uh, depictions of the various gods and goddesses that were being manufactured by the silversmiths. And so it was hurting into their livelihood. I made the point at the end last time that when, when people operate on biblical principles of giving, I'm not, I'm, excuse me, biblical principles of finance, Biblical principles emphasizing responsibility on how you handle money, not living on a debt system, then it impacts how they personally handle their money, and it also impacts how groups of Christians, that is, if you have a culture that is well-taught biblically, then they are going to emphasize uh, managing their money well, managing their investments well, uh, not living on debt, not spending frivolously, and you're going to have uh, families that save and build for the future. But when you see a country going more into paganism, where people are more self-absorbed and they're more emphasize, there's a greater emphasis on satisfying whatever their wants and desires are right now, then what happens is they spend frivolously and they don't save for the future and they go into debt and live on borrowed money all the time, and the end result is that it brings about a uh, eventually a collapse of the, of the culture. And we're living in the midst of that. We have all these things that are going on in Washington related to the debt crisis and related uh, to um, just funding the government and getting a budget, and it's, it's just absurd. People who, and we've seen this for 40 or 50 years now, where government leaders seem to have this complete disjunction between the how they handle large sums of money and how they handle their own personal finances. No individual in Washington, hopefully, lives and spends their money the way they spend the taxpayer's money. And, and this is just absurd. But the more we get into a pagan, self-absorbed, me-oriented uh, culture, the more it, it impacts uh, how we handle finances. And what we see in a microcosm in, in Ephesus is just how Christianity impacts how people handle their money. And there are a lot of different ways in which that, that changes. So chapter 20, verse 1, it just continues the story. Uh, following the riot after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself. Now, what he means by the disciples here are the believers who are in uh, in in uh, Ephesus. Uh, these are the the ones who are learners. The word for disciples in the Greek is mathetes. The verb is not used uh, in Acts here. And it's one of the few times after the Gospels that the term disciple is used. And this refers to those who are going somewhere in the Christian life. They are learners. They are studying the word. It is not a synonym. The word disciple is not a synonym, never has been a synonym for a believer. Uh, some people get into that error in the Gospels, and, and before long you, you begin to realize that they have a works-oriented salvation because as Jesus talks about the things that a disciple should do, uh, if you have to do something in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved, then you have a works salvation. This is typical within uh, a variety of different theological systems, but most notably we see it in Reformed theology and in lordship, uh, lordship salvation. So he calls the disciples together. These would be the believers who have, uh, a, a, who are more, more positive, those who are growing, those who are, have demonstrated a desire to know the word and to live it in their lives. And he calls them together, embraces them and departs to go to Macedonia. So we see that his ultimate objective is to go to Macedonia. But uh, how he gets there is not specifically stated in the passage. In fact, in these three verses, we see a more of a summary. We have to look at some things that are said in the epistles, some of the other epistles, to understand what was going on at this point in Paul's life. Luke is just giving us a very brief travelogue. So he wants to go to Macedonia. So he's here. 
in in Ephesus, and he's going to go to Macedonia. And verse 2 states, Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. See, he just passes over. He says when he had gone, gone over that region, that's jumping all the way from here up to Macedonia as that region because the green area down here of Achaia, that's Greece. Macedonia, today we look at the whole area going up into ancient Macedonia as part of Greece, but at that time Greece is restricted to the southern area, the area of Achaia. So all Luke is telling us in a very uh, uh, short manner as he goes to that region, which is Macedonia, that he just mentioned in verse 1. He goes over that region, encouraged them with many words. He came to Greece and stayed three months. Uh, That would be down here in Corinth. He stayed three months, and when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria. So he's down in uh, Corinth, and then he is determined to go back to Jerusalem because, as I pointed out the last time, He has purposed this by means of the Spirit, and it's using the same phrase that we find a number of places that reference some sort of specific divine guidance. In Acts chapter 19, Paul specifically stated that that this was done uh, in tonumity, that is, in or by means of, of God the Holy Spirit. In verse 21, we read, Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed by means of the Spirit. So he's getting specific divine guidance to go where? To go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia. So God the Holy Spirit is directing him to go to Macedonia and then to Achaia before he goes to Jerusalem and before he goes to Rome. That same terminology using the article before the uh, the noun of pneuma for spirit is unusual, and where you find it mostly in the Gospels and in Acts is related to some sort of specific uh, divine guidance. Sometimes the article's dropped off, and it still has the idea it's something more than just the filling of the Spirit. It has to do with uh, prophetic guidance. So, again, Paul is making this determination under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at this, break it down just a little bit more. He heads north from Ephesus to Troas, where he's planning to join Titus. See, there's no mention of Titus in um, in Acts here. He plans to join Titus and to then have Titus accompany him to Macedonia. And Titus is coming from Corinth with news from Corinth, and he gets tired of waiting for for Titus and Troas, and so Paul then leaves and goes on to um, goes on to uh, Philippi in Macedonia, where he will connect with uh, with Titus. The verses for Titus are in Second Corinthians twelve twelve and thirteen, where we where Paul in writing. It's at that time after he meets up with Titus that he writes 2 Corinthians. And he says in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, that's just what we're reading here in Acts 20, verses 1 through 3. When I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. So by that he means he's had an opportunity to teach the word and to proclaim the gospel in Troas. But he says in verse 13, I had no rest in my spirit. He's restless. He's impatient. He wants, he's, his target is to get to Macedonia and, uh, Titus has not appeared. He says, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So he's there about a week, and then he leaves. And then he goes on from there uh, to Macedonia, to Philippi, where he finally connects with uh, with Titus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, he says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, 
but we were troubled on every side. Now, Luke doesn't go into all of the details about the opposition and the persecution that Paul faced uh, during this time, but he faced an increasing amount of opposition and persecution, part of which is described also in Second Corinthians. Uh, the, it, it was a time when they had little rest. He's physically tired. He's, he's facing a tremendous amount of opposition, and he says, outside were conflicts, inside were fears. So he is, he's facing that, he's trusting God. When you say inside were fears, doesn't mean that he was necessarily out of fellowship. It is that when we face certain circumstances, there are anxieties, there are emotional reactions that take place in the area of fear or nervousness or worry or anxiety. The issue at that point is how do you handle that? Are you going to handle that by using the uh, some of the ten problem-solving devices or the ten, ten uh, stress busters, these spiritual skills? Are you going to use the faith rest drill? Are you going to use doctrinal orientation? Are you going to trust in God to solve your problems? Are you going to give in to the anxiety and the fear that has arisen because of the external circumstances? So he's talking about the fact that on the outside, he's facing uh, adversity, Adversity is what we face on the outside, but on the inside is when we respond negatively or wrongly to, to the outside adversity, then we experience stress. So this is what Paul is describing in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and then his conclusion is, nevertheless, God, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So, what he means by us here is that there's more people with him than than just himself. He's traveling by this time with at least Luke because we know from the narrative in Acts 20 that when he gets back into Macedonia, he picks up Luke. Luke, he le- last time we saw Luke with him was when he left uh, left Philippi, and apparently Luke stayed behind in Philippi to pastor and lead that congregation. That was um, that was left behind. Let me go back to the map here. So he comes up to uh, the area in Macedonia around Philippi, and now this has been several years since the second missionary journey when he when he established churches in Philippi and Thessalonica, and now through these areas and beyond, other churches have been established. There are groups of believers now that are scattered throughout uh, Macedonia. And he takes this time to travel from uh, or throughout Macedonia, and he may have gone, the indication from uh, 2 Timothy is that he has gone as far as Illyricum, which is where the areas of Serbia, Bosnia, the former uh, area of Yugoslavia, on the coast of the Adriatic. The... Um, uh, all along this this area from from Macedonia uh, through to uh, across Macedonia through Philippi and all these areas is where we have the Ignatian Way, and that is the the area that Paul would have traveled, looking at all these different congregations, encouraging them, strengthening, teaching them uh, them the word, and he does that until winter approaches, and as winter approaches. And the winter of 56 to 57, as winter approaches, then he has to head south down to, um, down to Corinth because it's, it's too cold, uh, to stay up in the area of Macedonia. He's going to move to a, to a better climate. So he heads to the south and there he is going to uh, minister for three uh, three months. This is verse 3. He stayed there three months, came to Greece, stayed there three months, and when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, what we learned from this is that... i got to go back to my map again. What we learned from this is that the tip of the port where you would depart from in Corinth to go to Syria is at Centria, where he had uh, taken a vow before, shaved his head. And it was here 
that he would have departed, but they get word that the Jewish opposition has hired a hit squad to kill Paul. And so Paul decides to leave the group and to head uh, head north. And we get a listing of the group in, in, uh, beginning in verse 4. Uh, we see Sopater of Berea, so he was a Greek, accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. So we have two from a little further north in Macedonia. Um, we have Gaius of Derby. This is a, a different Gaius, as mentioned in chapter 19. This Gaius is from Derby. And Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. So he has a group of Gentiles. There may have been one or two Jews in the group. And they're from different areas and different churches that he has planted. And so there's a group of eight that are traveling with him. And they take the, take a ship and they head back to Troas, whereas he, uh, takes off and he goes on his own, uh, with, accompanied by Luke. Look at verse five. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. So the us, that first person plural pronoun indicates when uh, Luke, the writer, has joined up with Paul. So Luke has been with Paul and he stays with Paul. So the two of them take the land route and the others take a ship back to Troas. And then uh, Luke and Paul arrive, uh, verse 6, but we sailed away from uh, Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So they celebrate Passover. Unleavened bread is another name for Passover. Passover is one day, but it is also the first day of a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. So they observe the Jewish holy days in Philippi with the believers that are there. This is another indication of the transitional nature in Acts. Uh, this is not something that most believers would do today. They, in fact, most Christians have no idea what the Jewish calendar is. But this was part of their culture. They're not putting themselves under the law. This is their ethnic background, their culture, and so they uh, observed the high holy days uh, on the Jewish calendar not as part of their Christian life, not as something that makes them more spiritual, but it's something that is very much a part of their ethnic heritage. After they observed the uh, Feast of Passover, then they left, and it took five days for them to travel by ship to Troas, where they then stayed for a week again. And this time, Paul has further ministry in Troas. Then we come to, then we come to verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bed, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Before I get there, I want to take a side trip for just a minute, and I want to talk about what he, one facet of his ministry. He's been teaching, he's been encouraging, and in other words, he's been strengthening them. As part of what he has been doing that we learn from the, the epistle to Second Corinthians as well as Romans is that he has been taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, this is important to understand in terms of the doctrine of giving because uh, we come from a heritage, a theological heritage, where there are some different views on, on the whole methodology of giving. And our tradition has been heavily influenced by uh, some Plymouth Brethren theology in good ways and some not-so-good ways. Uh, the Plymouth Brethren were, was a breakaway uh, de- denomination. It's almost a loose way of talking about it. That came, that broke away from the uh, some of the perceived apostasy of the Anglican Church in the early 19th century in England. And they're called Plymouth Brethren because one of the first places that they they met and began to really formulate their understanding of the, the, the ministry of the local church was in Plymouth, England. And they're called Plymouth Brethren because of their emphasis on the fact that the men in a congregation were the ones who were to lead the congregation and to teach the congregation. Plymouth Brethren did not do not believe in an official professional pastoral leadership of the church. 
and Plymouth Brethren Ecclesiology, they believed that the men in the church should lead the church. And so in a meeting of the church, uh, they will have uh, an emphasis on the men standing up at different times, all things done decently and in order, standing up and teaching from something they have studied uh, in the Word during the previous uh, week or two. And and so in a, if you've never been to a Plymouth Brethren service, it's very different. Uh, they will start off, and one man may stand up over here and say, uh, I think we should lead, we should sing uh, How Great Thou Art. So the congregation stands up, and they sing How Great Thou Art. Then another man may stand up and say, we have several people in the congregation who are ill, and we need to pray for them. He'll name them off, and then they'll pray for them. Uh, then uh, you may sit there in silence for some time, and then someone else will stand up and say, uh, the Lord has given me a message from uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and then he may preach for uh, 10 or 15 minutes from James 1, 2 through 4 as a result of his study in the Word. And then when he finishes, somebody else may stand up and study and, and, um, and teach from a portion of the Word. And this will go on for uh, maybe an hour, two hours, something of that nature. And uh, then they, some one of the leaders in the church will stand up and they say, well, let's, let us now sing a hymn and we'll close, close the service. Uh, John Nelson Darby, the founder of dispensational theology, first to systematize uh, dispensational theology, was one of the early leaders of the Plymouth Brethren movement. Uh, in almost every meeting of the church with Plymouth Brethren, they'll observe the Lord's table. It's very different. When I first went to Dallas Seminary, there was a Dallas Seminary Greek professor by the name of Lewis Johnson who had been a good friend of Pastor Themes and had taught him Greek at one point in his seminary career because Lewis Johnson was a few years older. And he pastored a church called Believer's Chapel. He was a, he was a good Bible teacher. He was better before he became a five-point Calvinist, but he was a good Bible teacher. Had a wonderful gentlemanly, southern, aristocratic accent. I could listen to Johnson talk all day long, just one of those beautiful South Carolinian uh, accents. And um, But the first time I went there for a Sunday night service, it was like a brethren service, and that was, that was uh, quite interesting because they will always observe the Lord's table. But nobody, and at Believer's Chapel, they had a... Um, they had a system where they had the, the, the tray with the wine. Uh, the inner circles were actually wine. The outer two circles in the tray were grape juice, but nobody ever told you that. And so I went with a friend of mine, and afterwards we got in an argument because he said, that was wine. I said, no, it wasn't. That was grape juice. <laughs> Obviously, he got the wine. I got the grape juice. We argued for weeks about that. And then one day I was talking to somebody, and they said, oh, yeah, that's what they do is they, they give people an option. They can either have grape juice or wine. So they ought to tell people that. You know, they just assume people know these things. That happens a lot of times at churches. We all know each other. We get into our little habits and everything. Somebody new comes in. We fail to sort of introduce them and orient them to what we do at our church. So anyhow, that's that's the Plymouth, uh, Plymouth Brethren uh, background and Plymouth Brethren movement. Well, one of the more famous Plymouth Brethren missionaries and, and um ministers in the mid-19th century was a man by the name of George Mueller, George Mueller of Bristol. And Mueller was a, uh, had an orphanage. And Mueller was known and is known in church history as a man who did not believe that it was right to ever ask anybody for a dime, that if God was going to supply his needs for the orphanage, then all he needed to do was talk to God about it, and God would provide, and that was all there was to it. You did not ever mention a financial need to anyone. And there are some remarkable stories about how uh, the orphans were down to the last little crumb of bread, and they would gather together for breakfast in the morning, and they would pray that God would provide bread for them, and a bread truck would break down in front of the front door. Uh, things like that. God was always supplying their need. Well, that's, that's wonderful. That's his conviction, and, but that's not biblical. I mean, uh, that's not something the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't say that. 
Uh, in fact, the Apostle Paul did just the opposite. He went around to the congregations. He said, there is a famine that has been going on in Jerusalem, and our brothers in Christ are suffering because of the, the, the famine. And so what I want you to do, this is what he instructed the Corinthian church to do. On the first of the week, set aside money for the collection for Jerusalem. And then when I come, I will take what you have collected, and this would be over a period of months, I will take what I've collected with me back to Jerusalem. And so he went through uh, the churches taking up a collection for a specific need, which he talked about prayed about, identified, and challenged people in the churches uh, to meet. And so that is one pattern. And, and so too often, I think, in, in our environment, we react to the, uh, the, the crazy extremists on television who are taking up. And I've been in services where six or seven collections were taken up. And I've gone to conferences where every other meeting somebody's taking up a collection. And people are just done for money in, in, many, uh, in many situations in Christianity. And so there's a tendency to react to that and go to the other extreme and to never mention money. But, but neither is a pattern that is authorized by Scripture because Scripture doesn't authorize a specific pattern. And so it's a decision that should be made by each ministry and by each congregation as to how they're going to handle uh, these kinds of things. So I thought that we would just take a, a little time tonight to review the doctrine of giving. In the Old Testament, uh, we read that there are uh, that there are different types of giving. Now, before I get there, I have this slide from Romans fifteen twenty five where we read about Paul, what Paul is saying to the Romans. He wrote Romans probably from Corinth uh, during that, uh, that winter, and he says to them of his plans, I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So he's made this collection for the poor in Jerusalem, and it says, It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. The first they refers to the Gentiles in Corinth who have uh, made these, these uh, given these gifts. They are their debtors. The second uh, there, third person plural there, the second there, refers to the Jewish brethren back in Jerusalem, recognizing that there is a relationship that Christians are dependent in some sense on their Jewish brethren because they are the ones who are the custodians of the of the scriptures of the Old Testament, and they are the ones through whom the Messiah came. And so uh, Paul talks about that as a as a, a form of indebtedness, spiritual indebtedness to their fellow Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And then he says in explanation, the last part of verse 27, for if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, the Gentiles have been blessed by virtue of the Abrahamic covenant. They've been blessed through the descendants of Abraham. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty, that is the duty of the Gentiles, is also to minister to them, that is the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, in material things. So he's clearly teaching that there is a responsibility on the part of believers to financially and materially take care of other believers that are in legitimate need. This is not socialism. Socialism is when a government entity comes along and imposes certain uh, requirements and mandates and percentages and taxes people to shift wealth from one group to another group and in order to transfer that wealth from one group to another group. This is all based on individual volition. Now, one of the things you will always notice when you watch some kind of liberal uh, who reads a passage like this say, see, this means that, that uh, we need to take care of the poor, and immediately they translate it and interpret it into some sort of government program. 
that the government needs to do this. They go back into the Old Testament where God accuses the uh, uh, the, the rich and the, uh, and the wealthy in Israel of ignoring the poor. And to see that we need to have programs to take care of the poor. No, it's an individual responsibility. Every one of these circumstances, in every one of these contexts, it had to do with the fact that individual believers were failing in their personal individual responsibility to provide for the needs of those who were destitute. And it didn't have to do with a corporate or government responsibility. It had to do with the individual responsibility. Now, in the Old Testament, there were uh, <clears throat> three. Diff- there were different ways of giving. Two basic ways were: first of all, there's a mandated uh, giving, which is called a tithe, and there were three tithes. And there was also a free will uh, giving. There was uh, uh, <clears throat> no command in the Old Testament to give anything until the Mosaic Law. Prior to the Mosaic Law, there are two times in Genesis that there is a reference to believers giving a tithe. The word tithe is an old English word for 10%, one-tenth. And there are two examples of, of individuals who gave a tithe, 10% of something, to the Lord. One was Abraham and the other was Jacob. It was a free will offering, though. It wasn't a result of a mandate because the first command you have for believers to give anything to God was in the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law had three different tithes. The first one was a 10% tithe. This is like a tax. And under a theo- the theocratic government of Israel, where God rules over Israel, this functioned similar to an income tax that supplied the needs, the financial needs of the, of the bureaucrats. And who were the bureaucrats in, in a theocracy? The priesthood. And so in Numbers 18.21, we read, Behold, God, God is speaking and says, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel. So this is the first tithe, and that they, they did not have property and inheritance in the land, but they were given a tithe. So there was a 10% tax on all the people uh, that would be uh, collected by the priests, stored in the, uh, in the temple or tabernacle before the temple, and then it would be distributed to the priests for their uh, sustenance and for their needs. The second tithe it was to, uh, was again imposed upon all uh, Jewish citizens, both believers and unbelievers, to support the costs of the temple sacrifices. This is described in Deuteronomy fourteen twenty two to twenty three, where, where God says, "You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year, and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, the firstborn of your herd. This was like having a large national celebration every year. You would take 10%. Now, if you had a really bad year, that 10% wouldn't amount to a whole lot, and so you weren't going to be eating and drinking very well at the uh, national birthday party, so to speak. But if you had been prospered well during the previous year and the, the national gross product was pretty high, then you would be eating the finest of everything and you would have a tremendous celebration. Now, in the Old Testament, God tied physical blessing to spiritual obedience. And this was an annual marker, an annual barometer, as it were, to measure the spirituality of the nation. So if the nation, as the the Mosaic Law uh, stated, if the nation was obedient, God would prosper them physically, bless them in terms of the abundance of their crops, and make their wombs fertile. But if they were disobedient, then just the opposite happened. The, the women would be barren. They would have, uh, uh, they would have droughts. The ground would grow hardened. Their, their, their livestock would not produce and, and their incomes would go down. 
And so how can you track that every year? Well, every year you have a party. And for a while there, when you're obedient to the Lord, everything's great. You're, you're drinking the finest of uh, champagnes, the finest single malt scotch. You're eating the uh, highest uh, quality prime Kobe beef. And uh, everything's great. You have a great celebration. Then 20 years later, you look around, and you're having your annual party, and everybody's eating hot dogs and hamburgers and and um, stale potato chips, and they're, they're having to get light beer at the discount store because there's just not enough money left to have a party. That ought to tell you something. That, wait a minute, what happened? Remember how wonderful it used to be? Maybe we screwed up somewhere. So it was a very physical way of, of measuring the spiritual status of the nation. So that's the second tithe. The third tithe was only taken every third year. So, so when you hear certain preachers talk about giving your tithe, there was an initial tithe that supported the priests, there's a second tithe that went to this kind of a national celebration, and then the third tithe is every every third year, and this was to be taken up in order to provide something of a safety net uh, for the uh, people who uh, who are truly uh, without within the society, those who have uh, no one to provide for them. First of all, the Levite, verse 29, and then the stranger, that would be a foreigner who is left destitute in the land, and the fatherless, that is the orphans, and the widow who are within your gates. Now, there's nothing wrong with having some sort of safety net. But what you have to guard against is a safety net turning into a hammock. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we have in our society where we have built a, a, a safety net that's transformed into a hammock, and people don't want to get out of the hammock. They just want to stay there. This was this was over. Uh, this was taken care of in the Mosaic Law because this wasn't going to provide an enormous amount of income for those who were destitute. It would keep them alive and provide the basic necessities. Not like today when you can go down and you can get your um, uh, get your food stamp debit card and you can go buy whatever you want to at the grocery store and live as if you have a lot. Uh, back when welfare-type things were first started, you, you received uh, package, certain packages from the uh, Department of Agriculture that took care of your meat. I know uh, uh, Jim Myers, many of you know Jim. Jim grew up in, in a, in a single-family, I mean, single-parent home. His mother was pretty destitute, and they grew up, he grew up on basically on welfare, and uh, he'd talk about the fact that most of the time the only meat they would get was horse meat. And, and they would get butter, and they would get cheese, and they would get peanut butter, and things of this nature that were products from, uh, from the Department of Agriculture. It wasn't the best of food, but it kept people alive, and it provided nourishment, and it provided the basics, and nobody wanted to stay there very long. You wanted to go, you know, improve your quality of life. And so that's the idea here is that every third year you take up a, a, a tithe, that's not going to provide a tremendous amount of resources to provide the, the safety net. You don't want people uh, relying upon that as their, as their means of income. So there, is a, there are these three different tithes. They're mandatory. They're part of the Mosaic Law. So they don't apply to anybody anymore. Those tithes are out. Then there was also a free will offering. Uh, this is seen in Leviticus 22:18 and Leviticus 22:21. Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel and say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel, of the strangers in Israel who offers a sacrifice for any of his vows or for any of his free will offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering. So there you have a category of a free will offering. It's not a mandated offering. It's not one of the five primary offerings. It was given as a free will volitional offering. Uh, it's mentioned again in verse 21, whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering, that was a required offering uh, to fulfill his vow, or a free will offering. So you have two kinds of offerings, a mandated offering which supported uh, the bureaucracy, which provided for the uh, uh, safety net for the widows and orphans in the, in the nation, and then you had a free will offering. Well, what survives into the New Testament church is only the free will offering. It's not something that is mandated 
uh, where a percentage is mandated. But giving is mandated. Now, a favorite passage of many people on tithing is Malachi 3.8, where God says, addressing the nation of Israel in their apostasy by the, uh, this is about 444 B.C., Will a man rob God? See, if you're not giving your tithes into the storehouse of the temple, then you're stealing from God. You're taking God's money. Uh, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. Now, he's speaking to the nation Israel because they're disobedient in relation to the laws of the tithes. And what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. They're not giving to the Lord to take care of the widows and orphans. See, the, the giving was individual. Okay, there was a mandate for 10%, and then that would be used in order to provide this uh, minimum uh, safety net. It's not a socialistic scheme, but they didn't even want to do that. So the corrective was to bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Storehouse is not the church. In the ancient world, temples were used as banks because uh, people believed that if somehow you robbed the temple, then the god or goddess of the temple would bring punishment upon you. So uh, the, the storehouse, the temple, was the place of the storehouse, and God says, bring the tithes into the storehouse that so there may be food in my house, and don't test me in this says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive. In other words, as I pointed out earlier, under the Mosaic law, there's this connection between physical, material prosperity and obedience to God. Remember, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's got to be some ways to have some concrete, measurable, uh, uh, quantifiable uh, metrics for, for determining whether or not you're being, you're being spiritual. So as Paul goes on his journey, his second missionary journey, uh, he's met up here in Macedonia somewhere by Titus, and Titus brings him word. He's already written 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians introduces the concept of giving in the, in the New Testament, but the main passages are really in, in 2 Corinthians. Now, if we go to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints. So they've already been taking up a collection. Notice it, both the word for collection and the word for the saints has a definite article. It is the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Notice he's not saying this is an option. He's saying take, providing uh, what you give for the, for the collection, it, I'm, I'm commanding you. He uses the word diatasso here in the, in the Greek, which means to command, to issue an order. And he says, I ordered the Galatian churches to give, and just as I did, uh, I ordered them, so it is necessary. You must do this also. And thus you do, literally in the Greek. Thus in this manner you also do. So he's issuing an order because this is part of the Christian life. This is part of their responsibility. In verse 2, we read, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. He recognizes that it's important to do this in an orderly manner and that it was to follow a certain uh, methodology where every week they would put aside some money and not just wait until he got there because then there wouldn't quite be enough. They might have had a had a down week that week and not have much money to provide for the collection. So take up every week, set aside a certain amount that will be used for financial aid uh, to Jerusalem. This is also indicated in Romans 15, uh, 26. The point that we see here is Paul is not hesitant to, in, to instruct on how believers should use their personal resources. He is very bold in terms of how he tells them they should use their time and their talent and their 
a treasure. So this gives us some great insights into uh, into the doctrine of giving. The believers in Jerusalem were financially destitute, so other believers were solicited to aid them financially. And the order was that on the first day of the week, they were to lay something aside. So there was a plan, and this is what every believer should do, is have a plan for giving. Giving should be regular, and it should be consistent, just like saving for the future. And they were, uh, sometimes people like to give for special events and at special times, and that's nice, and that's wonderful. But Christian organizations don't operate on big gifts coming at different times. What, what really helps Christian organizations is that consistency because when they, they have a consistent regular income, then they can uh, somewhat predict on the basis of that income and then they can responsibly budget their resources because there's a regular consistent uh, income that's being provided. Uh, sometimes we take up special collections for different things, for missionaries or sometimes uh, for a building plan or sometimes for a pastor's conference, things of that nature. One thing that also is beneficial to churches is that uh, when people uh, make out their wills to establish a certain amount of, uh, of, of their estate to, be go- to go to a, a nonprofit organization, to go to a local church in order to help supply that. I know of a number of churches uh, that have been greatly benefited by that number of ministries, greatly benefit, benefited by that as God has used that to supply their, their uh, particular needs. There's a lot of different ways that you can do that. But the core of, of Christian giving is that regular, consistent, uh, day-in, day-out, week-in, week-out giving. 1 Corinthians 16.3, we read Paul saying, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So they were going to pick someone that was responsible and trustworthy who would be, uh, who would be given the, the money to take to Jerusalem. Now that's a general, uh, sort of his general approach in, in 1 Corinthians 16, and he has a little more detail in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, where's Paul when he wrote 2 Corinthians? He's in Macedonia. Are the Macedonians very wealthy? Not at all. Several times he mentions that they are very poor, yet they gave uh, out of their poverty. He's, and so he's bragging on the Macedonian believers to the Corinthian church. He says, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, this wasn't easy for them to give, but they gave even though they didn't have very much. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy. See, that's their motivation, their joy in Christ. That's what I emphasize every Sunday when we take up the offering, that, that we're motivated by our own spiritual gratitude for what God has provided for us. So out of their abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. And the word, therefore, deep is bathos, which indicates something of great depth, uh, from their depth of their poverty. It's not that they're giving from their abundance. They're giving from their lack of anything. And they are giving uh, in a way that uh, is, shows their grace orientation. Grace orientation supplies abundantly the needs of others, just as God's grace abundantly applies ours. In verse 3, Paul says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Beyond their ability doesn't mean they pulled out their, their, their visa card and put it on their visa card, and then they were going to pay it off. Uh, they, they, just, they, they didn't have credit like that. They just recognized that, that they were going to have to refrain from certain things in their life, and instead of spending what little they had on some of the pleasures of life, they would give that money for the, uh, for the ministry of their Lord. So Paul says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely giving. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, they go on to describe a little bit more about their motivation from their orientation to God's grace. 
In verse 5 we read, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time. So he's going to send some of his entourage down to Corinth and to to teach giving and to have them set aside uh, money that would be then collected when Paul arrived. Uh, to, he was going to send them ahead of time to prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. See, a lot of times we get wrapped around the axle and people making a commitment ahead of time or making some sort of a pledge is is wrong. But here's Paul dealing with a situation where the Corinthian church has pledged a certain amount of money ahead of time and it's their promise ahead of time that now they're going to fulfill that promise when Paul comes in order to uh, provide uh, for the for the needs of Jerusalem, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. There he addresses their their motivation. He goes on in verse uh, <clears throat> verse four. Uh, uh, excuse me, Second Corinthians eight four. He says, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. See, there's a partnership that takes place when we give. When you give to a ministry, you're a part of that ministry. You give to West Houston Bible Church and the things that we're able to do at West Houston Bible Church, that's a part of your ministry. You give to uh, a seminary. You give to a missionary who's doing something in uh, some other part of the world. Then you're a part of that ministry. You're participating in that ministry, and it's a partnership. And you are very much a part of that, and these ministries depend, really depend upon that. I know, I've known Jim Myers for many years, and I use him as an example because I, I'm, that's the one I'm most familiar with. But as we've seen the decline of the dollar over the last 10, 12 years, that has really hurt missionaries. And I remember when Jim only came back to the U.S. every three or four years. But many missionaries now have to come back almost every year to go speak at different churches to continue working to raise support because as the dollar loses its value and you have inflation in these countries where they're working, they need more and more financial resources in order to accomplish the ministry that God has given them. And that doesn't mean that that somehow something isn't done right because they have to come back. It's the nature of the impact of the world system's financial collapse that we see these things happen. In 2 Corinthians 8.5, Paul goes on to talk about the fact that the foundation is, first of all, our relationship with the Lord. It's not about the money. It's not about how much you give. It's about your relationship with the Lord. In verse 5, he says, not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So the priority is your own personal spiritual life and spiritual growth, and giving is a byproduct of that. The foundation begins in verse 9 with the understanding of salvation. For, uh, you, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. It's following the pattern of God's grace giving through salvation. Also emphasizes consistency in verse 11, but now you also must complete the doing of it, uh, that as there was a readiness to desire at the beginning, you hear about a need and say, oh, I really want to support that, follow through in terms of, of giving. Uh, verse 12, he says, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. Some people have more, some people have less. We each have to give as unto the Lord in relation to how God has prospered us. And according to the principle of generosity, this is seen in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 9. He who, spares, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And cheerful giver there has the idea of someone who is generous and grace-oriented in their giving. 
And why? Because we understand that ultimately everything that we have comes from God, and he, just as he is making uh, grace abound to others through our generosity, so God makes grace abound to us as well. And so God is the one who provides for us. This is what Paul is doing along that ministry. He, as part of his teaching, encouraging, and strengthening of believers, he is also teaching them about giving and taking up a collection that he will take with him for the church in Jerusalem. So we got down through verse 6. We didn't really make it into the next uh, episode in, um, in, in Troas, but we will come back to that next time beginning at verse 7. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things uh, this evening. We thank you for the challenge that we see from the way Paul handled uh, giving and finances, that this is certainly a part of, of our life, that economics are impacted by what we believe. How we use our financial resources should also be impacted by what we believe and that we do have a responsibility of giving and giving generously to help those around us. And we have a priority in the family of Christ, in the royal family, to support the local church and to support missionaries as a high priority. And Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we study tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.